This is Emmanuel Today. Taking steps toward God's possible in your life. On today's program, we conclude our This Matters series with a message entitled, Neighborhood Matters. Let's get ready to learn more by joining Dr. Nate Roosh right now. So the neighborhood, I, I think of Mr. Rogers when I hear neighborhood, won't you be my neighbor? As we move into what, doing what Jesus cares about, Jesus has placed us around people that are very important to him, and we don't know when we're going to see them. And we have to wrestle with a very important responsibility to notice those people, to engage and be an expression of his love to the world around us. And every one of us need to be eyes to see what's around us. And it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, all of us have kind of the periphery, the neighbors around us that we wouldn't anticipate seeing. And when it comes to the story of life, the reality is the definition of neighbor has changed over time, hasn't it? I mean, neighborhood and what it means to be a neighbor has changed. But I can tell you, no matter what season of life you're in, whether you're a teenager or you're a young adult or you're, perhaps you're a parent of, of small children, or, or maybe you're now an empty nester, or whatever season of life that you're in, you will always have these opportunities if you take advantage of them, because the neighborhood truly matters. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. He's testing Jesus, right? And the question is this, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Interesting question, huh? He wanted to justify himself and ask, who is my neighbor? Now, I, I'm just gonna tell you straight up, the definitions of neighborhood and what a neighbor is has really changed over time. It used to be maybe in Pollyanna, America, back in the 1950s or so, that everybody knew who lived next door to them in their neighborhood and that everybody was real connected. But I'll tell you, as the fast-paced life has changed American society, and especially as we head into winter in Minnesota, hello, you might know your neighbors right now, but you won't see them for another six months once the snow falls, <laughs> right? You know, you drive in the driveway, hit your garage door, go in, you're not even talking to see them at all. So we're not just talking about the physical proximity here, but in reality, we are talking about our path of travel, and I'll talk about this in a moment. And Jesus addresses in response to the test by referring back to the scripture, and the man responds with two true biblical realities. The first was this, love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. But he wanted to justify himself, and he asked, who is my neighbor? Say that with me, who is my neighbor? And really, that's a question we need to ask ourselves today. A neighbor, for us, 
is when you go to drop the kids off, who's around you? When you go to Starbucks, who's around you? When you're on social media and you notice stories or things going on, that's a new path of travel. A neighbor is anyone who is in your path of travel. So I want you to consider this today as we move into the message. This is real foundational to what I want to talk about. The people that are in your path of travel, in your Mondays, your Tuesdays, your Wednesdays, your Thursdays, your Fridays, your Saturdays, those are the people that would be considered options for your neighbor. Because Jesus is about to tell a story about a path and a path of travel. Look at it in verse 30. Jesus replies with a story. This is how he responds to the, the who is my neighbor, the guy trying to justify himself. Jesus replied the story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds and with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three, Jesus is asking, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And Jesus asked, and the man replied, the one who showed him, what? Mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the what? So Jesus tells a story, and then he puts three characters in that story. And that intentional story, what he does is he sets it up. There's characters in there. There's a Jewish man who is on his regular road of travel, the path that he always goes on. It could be a Monday morning. Bandits come and rob him, beat him up, leave him for dead on the ground, okay? He's not dead yet, but he's wounded, he's bleeding, obviously. And he's got this character. Now, this Jewish man, there's kind of cultural rules about a Jewish man who should talk to a Jewish man, who should help a Jewish man, those cultural rules. And one of those might be another Jew to help them out. And so Jesus shows two other people that come along. One is a priest. And the priest walks along, a religious person, supposed to know what to do. And he sees the guy on the ground and he crosses to the other side of the road. He actually walks away from the problem to ignore the problem. Okay? The second person who's a temple assistant who also works, I kind of visualize somebody that's a little bit younger not as much responsibility, maybe more available. And he comes along and he sees him, but he too passes on the other side of the road. And then along comes a Samaritan and he uses the word despised. This despised Samaritan comes along and he's despised because Jewish people and Samaritans were never to talk to each other. They hated each other. They weren't on the same page. They're on different sides of life. So even though they used the same road, they were to actually kind of ignore. There's like an ignorance bubble around them, all right? And 
This guy breaks through the ignorance bubble, gets down, and begins to take care of the needs of this Jewish person. He bandages his wounds. He puts them on his donkey, or you could say he could put them in his car, took him to the hotel or to the, the place where he could heal up, pays for the guy's needs, and says, I'll come back. He goes the full length of taking care of him. And this is Jesus' story, you guys. Jesus is trying to speak something to us about who a, what a neighbor looks like, and at the very end of his story, he says, now you go do the same. So there's a responsibility that Jesus says. He's not just telling a good story, but in a sense, he's saying, if you really want to love God and love your neighbor, you're going to look like, sound like, act like, a little bit more like the Samaritan in the story than you will these other characters. And who does Jesus say the neighbor is? He says, it's the Samaritan. This is what I want you to catch. Hidden in the story is the heartbeat of Jesus. Jesus is really for people. He busts past all the boundaries and he believes in people for where they are and where they could be. He doesn't knock them out and say, uh, you're a loser because of your past. You're disqualified because you aren't of the right kind of ethnicity or you don't have enough money or you screwed it up in your past and you've done too many sins, so you're not worthy of being reached. Now Jesus busts past all of that and he shows these four people. I love this about him because he missionally pursues people, Jew and Gentile, sinner and saint, peasant and the rich, always, by the way, outside the church. Now this is what I want you to catch. Jesus' story isn't in Emmanuel on Sunday morning. His story is out in the path of travel that we live in. His story is meant to be placed out there, applied out there, applied where you go. I love how Jesus did that in his own story. He walked up on a woman who was about to be stoned for adultery, and he wrote down in the, the dust, of course, and, and said, the one without sin cast the first stone. He stood up for this, this woman who nobody else would stand up for. She comes to him, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He's for people even when they're in their sin. And he believes for a different future for them. And he wasn't weakened by being associated with people that religious people didn't like. Or the Roman officer who sent the word for the little child to be healed. He associated with government officials. That's not a real popular thing nowadays, is it? And then on the cross to all of us, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What Jesus is teaching us about on our neighborhood mattering is really important for us to catch. And I want to give you today five lessons that help make your neighborhood matter. Five lessons that help make your neighborhood matter. If you want to take notes, go ahead and get them. The first one is this. Stop narcissism. See more than yourself in the picture. This is, I mean, we can't even pass this one point and do what Jesus is saying. We gotta get past our own needs. The first two people that went in the story looked and, and their own needs superseded the needs of the guy on the ground. I had to get somewhere. I'm on a schedule. This would cost me too much. Perhaps they calculated, if I go help him, it's gonna take me all day. So it's my needs before their needs, okay? Narcissism is really the ability to think about yourself all the time in every circumstance and not to have a capacity to empathize or understand other people in the story. 
I mean, I want you to think about this. If I were to get you together in your group, in, in your row, and I were to squeeze you all together and maybe get four or five or six of you in there, I'd say, okay, I'm gonna take a picture. And I get you all there, and I look straight, smile, one, two, three, psh, okay, snap the picture. And then I show you the picture. Who's the first person in the picture you look at? You look at yourself, right? We're consumed with our own thoughts, our own needs all the time. And I want to tell you, that goes back to the garden. That's the sinful nature. That's why we need a savior. That's why Jesus died for our sin before we deserved it. But when Jesus enters your life, he begins to shift you away from thinking about me to we. Come on, somebody. And you begin to notice the people around you. You gotta say no and stop narcissism. Do you know what your blind spots are? Are there people you're not seeing right now? Are there people you're walking around and it's just a habit and you don't even think about? People's needs that might be right next to you and you don't even know in your path of travel? Open your eyes and fight indifference, friends. Fight indifference on it. Number two. Seek the best for the people in your path of travel. Seek the best for the people in your path of travel. Seek the best. This is an interesting thought because in your own story, you and I are kind of walking along and we have different categories that we put people in. And when I say walking along, that could be on social media. And you're flipping through somebody's story or the thing that they retweet or the picture that they post or the snap the story that they've got up on there or some TikTok thing, whatever it may be. And you, you're going through it. You might categorize, oh, that's a, and put a label on it. That's conservative, that's liberal. Or that's just teenagers, that's a millennial thing. We've got all kinds of categories that we kind of, you're old. Now, I've heard that from many people over time. And we kind of dismiss people by the category we place them in. And Jesus is blowing the categories up. And I want to just say this. Consider the ones that you have a bad attitude about or the people you don't like. What if you believe the best for them? That something good could come out of their story. Not that they would just believe like you, but, but you would believe the best for them. They have what's called the Imago Dei on their life. The image of God. Did you know when God created us, he created us in his image. When you look at somebody else, you're looking at a child of God. Even the worst of the worst political enemies. Even the people that don't like you. And I'm just telling you this right now, church. As Christians, not everybody in our society likes Christians. But we can't be like the people that don't like us. For when we look back at them, we need to see the image of God on them. Even if they root for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Come on, somebody. Mm, the little inner Michigan in me is coming out. Even if they like the Packers or the Vikings. And it's easy to dismiss a cheesehead, right? I want you to consider when we're looking at others, we're not wishing that their team wins on the field necessarily. 
But we want to see them win. God's creation be what it was designed to be. There's so much dysfunction. People are the way they are for a reason. There's things that have happened in their backstory. And as an emissary of heaven, as you walk amongst the people around you, you are meant to be one that believes the best for them, not another critic in their story. Come on, somebody. That's a big one for the church. We live our lives knowing that God is on our side. We love that. Psalm 56, my enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know, God is on my side. Psalm 118, the Lord is for me, so I'll have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I don't know about you, but I love the fact that God is on my side. I'm thankful that he believes in me, even though sometimes I'm an idiot. You hear what I'm saying? Even though I mess up sometimes, I'm thankful his grace is sufficient, that he believes in me, that he smiles on my life, that his grace is greater than my sin, that he has an ability to straighten out the crooked things in me and make me into the the design and the destiny that he's got for my life. And all of us can say God is on my side. But I want you to know, the longer you walk with your father as his children, the more you need to look like, think like, visualize like he does the other children in his story to believe the best for others to become passionate fans of the people that God has placed in our path of travel to be for someone we're in a person's corner for where they could and should be to be for someone is to have the vision that Jesus has for their life to be for someone is to fight the enemy of their soul in prayer because we don't want anyone to fight alone To be for someone is to refuse any form of gossip that people want to bring into public. To be for people is to refuse to give up on them when they choose foolishly. To be for people sometimes means refusing to join their bad choices so they can have a way back. And to be for people is to relentlessly pray for God's best in their life. The biblical character that I love in this regard of someone that is for people is the guy named Barnabas. Barnabas in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, actually became one of the apostles. And he was an interesting guy. His name means son of encouragement. He believed in people that others didn't. In fact, there was a time when this guy named Saul in the book of Acts was murdering Christians, pulling them out of homes, separating families, killing the church. And he thought he was doing a service to God. And then Jesus interrupts Saul on the road to Damascus and gives him a vision and a new mission. So Saul gets saved, saved. He gives up. He says, God, take over my life. He, he asks for, for repentance. And God, Jesus gives him a mission to go preach the gospel around the world. Now, right at that moment, the church hears about it in Jerusalem. And how do you think they felt about Saul? And his name was now Paul, and it changed. There's a transformation in him. They're like, I don't know if I want that terrorist to come into our team. He's murdered people. He killed my brother-in-law. He killed my sister. You know, they're having real problems with Paul, okay? Along comes Barnabas, who puts his arm around Paul, And he says, I'm with you, buddy. And he takes Paul to Jerusalem 
He puts his own credibility on the line and he gives him favor amongst the council in Jerusalem. They were still a little uneasy, but then Barnabas goes on a missionary journey with Paul and stays with him in his story. And by the way, if Barnabas didn't step in for Paul, we wouldn't have two-thirds of the New Testament that we have today. For all those letters written by Paul are really a result originally of Barnabas stepping in and believing in somebody like him. And I'm saying this to you, church. There are so many people we dream of seeing the world around us come to know Jesus. We want people's stories to be turned around. We got people that are anti-church, anti-God, not living for Jesus, and some of them are mocking us, putting pressure on us. Some have led us down the wrong path. Some of us got involved in, in drugs and alcohol and partying scenes and addictions. Some of those same people that have caused harm, God, God intends to turn around for the good. He wants to see those same people saved, and when they get saved, He's looking back at the church, not for an older brother in the prodigal son story, but he's looking back at the church for us to be Barnabases. Come on, somebody. To be believers in them to see their story out. Number three, pray for the people in your path of travel. Pray for the people in your path of travel. One of the things that uh, I've noticed that over time, is if I've got blindness to something, I'm not noticing, I'm not emotionally or relationally intelligent, and I don't know what's going on in the periphery of my story. When I pray, I can pray, Lord, would you open my eyes to see what you see? Would you help me with my blind spots? Would you reveal to me where I need to change? How many know that when you begin to pray, maybe you've got something that's uh, an addiction in your life, or maybe you've got temptation that kind of pops up all the time and things that you're fighting in your story. When you fight it alone, how many know it's impossible? But when you start to confess it to Jesus and you say, I need help, would you cleanse me, but would you also give me the power to break this and break through? How many know prayer opens up a portal to heaven? And he has the ability of coming back down and giving the junk out of your heart, but coming back and re replacing it with the brand new in, in your heart and God gives you a new story. Well, I think we can also pray that way when we look around us and we see the needs of people around us and we can pray in such a way as we pray for them. In other words, it's like we're in the stands of heaven going, you know, I got a friend here. They're going through some issues. I don't know what to do. I don't even know if I know what to do about it or to help them. But Lord, I pray for them. Would you send resources their way? Would you help them? It's a, it's a starting point. By the way, prayer is a great way to precede action. If you live in a, in a state of mind where you're continuously praying and you're praying for the people in your life, God does something. When you step into it, all of a sudden you recognize this is a God moment. God is opening my eyes right now. I'm seeing a need I didn't see before because I'm in partnership with heaven. You pray for the people in your story. It's number four thing that we can do here is do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. This is something Andy Stanley talked about in the church world years ago, but I wanna apply it to this. Do for one what you wish you can do for everyone. We have something going on in America right now called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is kind of that reality that we're always aware of needs around the world. Technology has put us in touch with all kinds of natural disasters around the world, people that are starving in other continents. 
We're aware of hurricane relief and other things going on and the, the news headlines, whether it be on our, our scrolling on our phone or we happen to see it on a monitor in an airport or wherever it may be, shows all the devastation and dysfunction and hurt and woundedness around us. But it's done something to us, church. You know what it's done? It's numbed us to those needs so that when it's right in front of us as we walk down the road, we don't feel anything. We've lost our compassionate heart. So what I wanna suggest to you is if you're in a place where you no longer care or you're in a place where indifference is close to you, then maybe if you just care one need, it will unlock compassion in your soul again. You can't do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You could notice the needs in your local community and volunteer at a local school. You could step into a space where you notice and hear about a one-time opportunity where there's a family that's trying to help somebody else. They're, they're in the hospital and they're delivering meals. You could step into the space where you help somebody in some way. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I believe that we can pray. We can pray. Are you doing that? Are you praying for the needs that you see around you? Are you at least praying or is it so numb to you that you no longer even take that need to the Father? That's the first thing you can do. You can give. Maybe you can give financially to one need or maybe you can give your time to some opportunity but you can also go. And one of the things I wanna encourage you is that sometime in the next year or two, go on a missions trip. Unlock something inside of you again. I'll tell you what, when you take the time to serve, it drives narcissism out of your life. You have an ability to care for other people's needs. We have mission trips at the church here, but there are also mission opportunities in the Twin Cities. Many, many organizations that are feeding the homeless, that are taking care of needs and shelters around the community. You can jump in and serve. You can do this. And the fifth and final thing is this. Rely on the help of the Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, but you, Jesus is speaking, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Today. You can learn more about the various ministries that Emmanuel offers and see Sunday services live every week. Check out emmanuelcc.org for details. Please be sure to tell others about this broadcast that they could enjoy next week at this same time.